A lot of you have been asking me about psychic development work. And if you follow me on TikTok, you've seen me sharing a lot about how to connect as a psychic and as a medium and how to tap into your intuition. So pay attention because coming into January, there's going to be a pre-recorded psychic development class for a super affordable price. And then also some group and private mentorship available in the way of developing your intuition. The details are still being hammered out, but as usual, you know, you guys will be the first to know. Well, I love doing this show and putting information together about missing and murdered persons and, and putting that information out to the general public, amplifying the voices of the lesser heard voices, feeling into their cases as a psychic medium. This is really, it's a dream come true for me to be able to use my gift in a way that it can do good, do good. Yes, do good. But I also work to make all of this possible. And I've had a lot of people asking if I do private readings and I absolutely do. You can find me at katherineandintuitive.com for psychic development mentorship, private readings for mentorship in the way of growing in your spirituality and growing to love and accept yourself exactly as you are. And for one-off questions as well, that will receive a short video response delivered to your email. So coming in February, 2022, I'm actually going to be opening another show up for your self-worth group program. And the program is for women looking to connect with their value and learn to handle life's curveballs with grace, ease, and full faith that they can improve things for themselves and live a happier more fulfilled, less stressful existence. This is the second time I have run this program and I am so excited to kick off the new year with a little bit of self-love and establishing some habits and routines to keep ourselves feeling as important as we should be throughout our daily existence and through all of the curveballs that life does throw to us. Anyway, I'm your host, Katherine Gelvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into the case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledged the Patreon in support of the show. I've added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of production without making a monthly pledge. Thank you for the reviews and especially to this one entitled Awesome True Crime Podcast. Adria Lane writes, I look forward to this podcast every Monday. Love learning about the different cases that Catherine sheds lights on, many who I haven't heard of previously. She really knows how to captivate the audience and make you feel like you're watching it all play out. Thank you, Adri. Your review really is so very much appreciated. If you like what you hear, you guys, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review to boost the likelihood of others stumbling upon this podcast. I'm going to also link in the show notes, but I was recently on a podcast called Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories. I had such a wonderful time interviewing with the host and his guest co-host. His name was Noah Daniels, and then Evelyn Kennedy guest hosted with him. Go check that podcast out. They have a great thing going, and I truly look forward to connecting with them again in the future. And also, I was a busy little lady the last couple of weeks. I was just recently on Interbloom podcast as well. Now, this is the podcast hosted by the woman who started it all for me, who helped me tap into my intuitive ability and kind of take my life back into my hands and start living life on my terms and feeling really good about it. Interbloom podcast recently hit number six on iTunes for spiritual podcasts. And I had the absolute privilege of talking about systemic racism and privilege in media coverage and investigations into missing and murdered people on their show. It was such a beautiful conversation about a topic that needs more light shed on it. And thank you so much to both of these wonderful women and it's because of these beautiful souls, Ambrosia and Alexa, that I even started my own spiritual business and this podcast as well. 
As always, send any show requests to Catherine Galvin at catherineandintuitive.com. And so we begin. Olivia Lone Bear grew up on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. She was born and raised as a member of the Confederation of MHA Nation. These three tribes, the, the Mandan, the Hidatsa, and the Orikara, are also known as the three affiliate tribes. While she had moved away to California and left home to study various things here and there, she always came back to North Dakota and her home with her family with whom she was very close. A bartender at a local casino, Olivia was very aware of the dangers that were around her both on and off of the reservation. She and her friends would mostly hang out at each other's houses as the area was full of man camps and out. this is basically out-of-town oil field workers who would stay in these um, trailers. It was temporary housing for employees of the oil fields, and it was majority men. And the area was full of um, oil field workers, drugs, drinking, and generally just unsafe conditions. So you see, Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota is home to a large piece of the Pecan Formation. This is a rock formation that is one of the most important sources of oil production in the U.S., With the incredible growth and production of the oil industry in North Dakota during this time, also came a housing shortage for mainly men relocating to the area for work in the oil fields. And this is what created, this created what is known in the area as man camps. Man camps, again, are temporary housing trailers for men working in the fields. They were making favorable compensation and had nowhere to spend this money outside of bars and casinos and on drugs and prostitution. The dangerous working conditions and nowhere to blow off steam can lead to a decline in mental health and the onset of some pretty bad habits. This multi-billion dollar boom wasn't a ticket to incredible economic benefit for those living on the reservation, at least not most of them. It was described as a small number of people living on the reservation profiting from land leases and fractional ownership of energy-rich allotments of land. Where the rest of the tribal community has been unable to enjoy these royalties, they're responsible for bearing the burden of higher housing costs, violence, and drug use because of the oil boom in the area. And I haven't brought it up yet, but Olivia was also a mother to five beautiful children. And because of her hard work as a bartender and her five children, she didn't get out very much to blow off steam anyway. She also lived with her dad in his ranch house on Highway 23, not far from her previous job working as a bartender at Ranchman's 23 Steakhouse and Saloon Restaurant in Newtown. Just to give you an idea of the reality of danger in the area, casino security would walk Olivia and her co-workers to their car every single night after their shift so as to prevent any sexual assault or theft of any kind. Well, On October 24th, 2017, this was the last day that anyone would hear from Olivia. A friend of hers, Jim Hoffenk, an older male from California around age 50, had established a relationship, kind of a friendship really with her, and from what I understand with her family as well. He referred to her as his quote running buddy, and I don't really, I'm going to be honest here, I don't actually know if they went running as in like jogging together or if this was someone he'd run around with and go out with on the town. I'm not really sure. Not important. Anyway, Jim would lend her his grayish, tealish, depends on who whose report you're reading, his Silverado pickup truck when she needed it. Well, on that day, she had been texting him and she told him she was at her dad's on Highway 23 doing laundry. Well, Jim showed up later to drop groceries off to her, and she wasn't there, and no one appeared to be home at all. At least no one came to the door. 
She was still gone, though, when her family got home, though her jacket, phone, debit card, and wallet were all there. She had taken Jim's truck, and according to an interview with one of Olivia's daughters, Olivia had told her son, JC, that she would be home a little bit later that evening. So when Olivia didn't come home, the family immediately went on high alert. And I want to say that this definitely confuses me a little bit when they talk about how Jim came by to drop off groceries, but no one was there. But then she took his truck. So I don't understand how she got his truck or if he was driving a different vehicle. That's never really clarified. And I don't think that it's necessarily super important because he's not someone that they really look at as a threat in this event anyway. So on the 26th, her oldest brother Malachi was posting on social media looking for Olivia and inquiring as to whether any of her friends had seen or heard from her. This really wasn't like her at all and concern continued to grow. So the next day, they reported her missing to tribal police on October 27th, 2017. Police were, as usual, if you've been paying attention to these missing and murdered Indigenous women cases, they were slow to get involved. Who is to say exactly why? They told her daughter and children that Olivia had probably eloped or had left for a bit but would be back. And I'm not sure if authorities truly believe this or if they were just saying it to comfort the upset children. I really don't understand where the elopement came from because from what I can tell, from what I can feel into, and from what I can also just surmise from reading all of these different reports, it doesn't appear that she had a serious boyfriend at all. So on the second day of the investigation, they told her father, Tex Lone Bear, that Olivia's missing wasn't the only thing going on on the reservation essentially insinuating that they had other problems than just her and she wasn't being given priority. According to her brother, Matt, it really had set the tone for how they would be treated throughout the rest of the investigation. And basically they weren't treated with any sense of urgency whatsoever. In an interview, Matt talks about how in North Dakota in October, kids go trick-or-treating with snowsuits on under their costumes sometimes because it gets cold fast and it's an unforgivable type of cold. Missing in North Dakota with snow coming is not ideal, but pair it with lackluster law enforcement and jurisdictional confusion, it's even more foreboding. And it's, I kind of got a little bit of a giggle out of him talking about kids going trick-or-treating in their snowsuits underneath their costumes and stuffing them around them. I can remember as a kid growing up in Buffalo, New York, we would always buy our Halloween costumes just like a little too big. So if it was snowy or cold, you could still go in them. They just would fit over your snowsuit. Meanwhile, I live in Virginia Beach with my children and it's it's rare that even by I'm recording this mid-December that we even need like a heavy jacket on this time of the year down here. So I think that's it's worth noting that missing in this area in October is much more dangerous than it would be to be missing in another part of the country that didn't get as cold. Regardless, when she was initially reported missing, police didn't even issue a stateside alert or even begin to search for her until Monday, the 30th of October, when she had already been missing for nearly six days. To make matters even worse, because I'm sure you can believe that they can continue to get worse here, Tribal police hadn't filed the police report, again, jurisdictional webs. The local news couldn't report on it because they hadn't filed this police report. You've all heard of the show, The First 48. At least most of you who are listening to this podcast are probably obsessed with like 90% of whatever crime stuff is on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all of that, right? So 
this time that's so crucial in the very beginning was beyond just wasted. It was squandered and taken for granted and completely ignored. According to my research, the tribal police on the Fort Berthold Reservation was running at about 20 officers. And while the number fluctuates, they have officers leaving them regularly for more high-paying jobs working in the very oil fields that have brought this poor um, social kind of existence here with the drugs and, and the prostitution and all of that. So three affiliate tribes police chief, Chad Johnson, tells the press that he needs at least 50 more police officers, not just 50 total, but 50 more, but that with no housing available because of the oil boom, it's difficult to find recruits willing to move there. Some are able to be put up in a casino hotel, but those with families are mostly unwilling to live in a casino hotel, and understandably so. Not only that, but even if there were housing available, the community as a whole is largely very unsafe at this time. The same goes for trying to get prosecutors into the area to prosecute tribal crimes. No one is willing with a lack of housing and a lack of safety. The Department of Justice found and admitted, which I find kind of shocking that they would admit this because I feel like it's rare that the government will admit when something that it's been doing is not um, in the best interest of its citizens or that there is a problem at all with what they are doing. But the, the DOJ, I digress, admitted that the oil industry camps are impacting domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, stalking, drug trafficking, and sex trafficking in and around the surrounding communities as well. It's not just this one little tiny blip on the radar that's experiencing all of this trauma. It's a, a large area of, of the state and of Montana and of, of other places that are related to these oil fields and these drilling infrastructures. You're seeing these crime rates go up around the boom that happens with with the production in the U.S. And it, it's terrible because we see it so much as, I say just very lightly, but just as an environmental impact, we don't think about the socioeconomic impact. It's not making people money in a way that, it, it, while it's making people money, it's also simultaneously destroying lives and destroying the land and, and destroying things that that the indigenous people in this country have already had so much taken from them. And now we come in with this type of stuff and, and we just rip even more from them. And, and I digress because I'll get into that more in a few moments. But a tip came in about seeing Jim's truck. But because the informant didn't identify the color of the license plate, the tip was dismissed. The family also pleaded with law enforcement to use the OnStar system in Jim's truck to track it down. But their inquiry went unanswered which police denied these allegations to the local news, and ultimately, the case ended up being handed over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Law enforcement was able to find security footage at the Newtown Bank that showed her stopping, showed Olivia stopping at a store in Jim Silverado on the 24th. There's also a report that states she was last seen driving the Silverado from Sportsman's Bar near her home on Highway 23. This is the bar that she worked in prior to working at the casino. Law enforcement did give them trouble, but they did receive search and rescue assistance from surrounding tribes and other agencies. They were still in need of greater aerial support, water support, and even more ground coverage was needed. And I'm not sure what number of cases is that I've covered here on murder and mediumship around missing and murdered Indigenous women, but it's a common thread here that law enforcement is always less helpful than they should be and that other communities step in to help. 
And it's beautiful that they received that help from the other communities. Even a, a county up in Montana came down to help and commented on how tribal police had given them all of this room to set up um, an investigation within their headquarters, but they weren't running the investigation themselves. The family was, and they had a lot to say. The, the county from Montana had a lot to say about that because they had never seen a search being run by family before. And, and they shouldn't. That's it's not how it should be. So these agencies still don't have jurisdictional authority, though. So any legal action really still has to be taken by tribal police, the BIA, or the FBI, right? So regardless of how much outside help it is that they receive, if they don't have the professional support, the correct jurisdictional support, they're still at a disadvantage. The Bureau of Criminal Investigations, Tribal Police, the BIA, Ward County Sheriffs, Williams County Sheriffs, North Dakota Game and Fish, North Dakota Highway Patrol, the Tribal Game and Fish, Burley County Sheriff, all came to aid with the support that was needed from Tribal Police was still not given. They needed to search Lake Sakakawea as it was beginning to freeze over and once it was frozen, they wouldn't be able to search until it thawed. While they pushed for the water to be searched, police departments all pointed fingers at each other. Best case, trying to pass responsibility or jurisdictional authority to the appropriate department, but more than likely, they were just trying to shirk the responsibility so that someone else would pick it up. I doubt it had anything to do with making sure the proper authority was there. They didn't want to be the proper authority themselves. As the family pushed for FBI involvement, being that local enforcement and the BIA wasn't doing enough, the FBI made a statement that their jurisdictional authority varies from state to state and even from reservation to reservation. While all of the dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's is being argued over and decided, a family is still waiting to know what happened to their mother, their sister, their daughter, and their friend. This is so unacceptable, and I can only begin to imagine the outrage and disappointment that her seemingly helpless family experienced. And again, another family-led search is halting at the mishandling from law enforcement. In an interview, Matt described his feelings as, as, is it feeling almost like a coin toss of whether or not law enforcement would help? And her family, Olivia, actually had a cousin who was still mourning the loss of Savannah LaFontaine. Greywind, if you recall her from a previous episode, who was killed in North Dakota in 2017 as well. So they really aren't getting away from all of this tragedy. It's, it's like pounding down on their door. University of Kansas professor Sarah Deer speaks about these jurisdictional disasters. She says, you've got all these legal barriers that prevent the tribes themselves from taking action. These are all limits that have been placed on tribes by our federal government. And what she's saying is so true. And ultimately, an incredibly outdated code that was created has created this disaster. In 1978, that's 43 years ago, Justice William Rehnquist, an associate justice on the Supreme Court, stated that by submitting to the overriding sovereignty of the U.S., Indian tribes necessarily give up their power to try non-Indian citizens of the U.S., except in a manner acceptable to Congress. This came from the Supreme Court case of Oliphant versus the Suquamish Indian tribe. This is a case I won't get into, but essentially, if I can make this brief, Mark Oliphant was a non-native living full-time with the Suquamish tribe, and when things got out of control at a celebration, he was arrested and charged with assaulting a tribal officer. The irony in this is just astounding because the celebration was in it was to commemorate Chief Seattle, okay, who was an indigenous chief 
who was responsible for kind of bridging the gap and making it possible for white people and indigenous people to work together and and efficient and um in a to put it very like layman's terms in a very productive and safe and um, encouraging way so this man is charged this white man is arrested and charged with assaulting a tribal officer celebrating the life of a man who made it possible to have positive relations together it's just sick the county actually had um, the tribe had previously requested law enforcement support from the county this celebration was taking place in, and the county actually sent one deputy, one whole deputy. Well, the BIA sent no one at all to support tribal police. So they knew that it was going to get out of control, and they tried to set up the proper um, barriers, to set the, the correct amount of security in place and things like that, and no one supported them. And remember, tribal police is severely underfunded and very, very understaffed. So for them to be asking for help they needed it. Well, Oliphant challenged the authority of the tribal police to arrest and charge him as a non-native member, and ultimately he won. Herein is where there are so many problems, like living full-time with the Suquamish tribe, but not being held to the same letter of the law as they are. But I digress. This is where the authority of the tribal police was spelled out versus the authority of the BIA and the FBI. In June of 2018, Lissa Yellowbird, an advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women, was contacted by a cousin of Olivia's, asking her to help them in their quest against law enforcement and to help them find and bring their Olivia home. Lissa obliged and came down to North Dakota to help. I'll talk more about Lissa and her role when we cover her cousin's case, Carla Yellowbird. However, Lissa pushed for authorities to search Lake Sakakawea as they did have boats that were not being used, even though law enforcement claimed to not have any available as they were being prepared for winter weather or fixed or any number of excuses to not thoroughly search the lake. And her brother, Matt, Olivia's brother, Matt, actually posted a photo of police boats on social media saying they're telling us that they can't search this lake because they don't have the proper equipment. But look at these boats sitting right here. And that really kind of resulted in a huge public outcry from what I understand. So Lissa ended up taking her own boat and sonar equipment out onto the lake in July of 2018 and was fortunately able to find the image of a pickup truck on the bottom of the lake. So nine months from the day that Olivia disappeared, she was found exactly where her family begged law enforcement to search before the lake froze over. She was strapped into the passenger side of Jim's truck. Her cause of death was undetermined, as you can imagine, an autopsy would not be able to show much after her body sat at the bottom of a lake for nine months. However, a foul play was clearly suspected. With that being said, feeling into this case, I do believe that she was followed home by someone she knew and maybe wasn't really friends with. I get the impression of friendly with, though, so there was some sort of relation but maybe more passive. Considering she's a bartender, it's essentially her job to pour drinks and be nice for tips, right? So having worked in a restaurant scene myself for too many years, I know the rapport that bartenders build with their regular customers, that servers build with their regular customers. That being said, I almost feel like this would have been someone who maybe followed her to the saloon that she was leaving from. They knew where she was going next because though.
to hear this podcast. I have had Families Here episodes before, and I won't risk that. However, I do believe that she didn't necessarily know how much danger she was in when near this person. I see him killing her and then moving her over to the passenger seat and strapping her in. I believe he got the truck as far into the lake as he could before climbing out himself and leaving her there. I also believe that she was deceased before she entered the water. There is speculation about the involvement of a man or his wife from an incident that occurred at the sportsman that led to her getting fired. According to co-workers, though, she was fired after the wife of an ex-boyfriend came in and confronted Olivia. She beat her up and repeatedly slammed her head into the pool table. I do not believe that this incident had anything to do with her disappearance. If the ex-boyfriend was involved, then perhaps he's the one who was stalking her, but it does feel separate to me. Maybe he knew the stalker? This is where I remind you that intuitives aren't here to solve cases, but to shed light on pieces that are otherwise unconnected or uncollected. And I do believe, too, that there's a very strong possibility that there is a second person involved or at least someone who who is aware, very detailed, very detailed in their awareness of what happened to Olivia the day that she was killed. But to this day, no arrests have been made in the murder of Olivia Lone Pair. Her children are left with only memories of her. As her daughter said, that's what was important to her mom, creating memories and experiences with her children. And that's exactly what they have. Just to give you a little bit more background, if you're still listening, the area of North Dakota that Olivia is from saw a 121% increase in crime between 2005 and 2011. While the oil boom has slowed down in the area, the crime rate has not. When Olivia disappeared in 2017, the area was still inundated with heroin and methamphetamine use, littered with man camps, and in the middle of a housing shortage, making it nearly impossible for tribal law enforcement to make any progress on cleaning up the area or improving the lives of those living on the nearly 1 million acre reservation. With this economic growth came social and crime disparity. Motorcycle gangs arrived to take ownership of the area and brought them brought with them even more drugs and prostitution. With the reservation spanning over six counties, an already jurisdictional disaster becomes even messier. Fortunately, tribal police do have the ability to detain suspects until state or federal authorities arrive, but that can take hours or even days to happen sometimes. If a tribal member is trafficked or assaulted by a non-tribal member, then the tribe does not have the authority to prosecute. Even if the governing authority takes custody of the suspect, the FBI can still decline to prosecute and actually does decline to prosecute the vast majority of cases. How are we going to make any forward progress if the solutions we offer are largely smoke and mirrors? We're here to help as we take the suspect and then drop all charges and release them again with no consequences because what does it matter to us? The environmental impacts of the oil industry are great, that's for sure. But what we don't stop to consider is that the imp- is the impact that it has on the well-being of others, mainly of indigenous people, of the very land we are forcing ourselves onto yet again. In these areas, the more extraction we see of these fossil fuels, the more rapes we see of indigenous women. The 1 million acres we left them after the original 12 million was assigned to them in the 1851 treaty was not known at the time to be rich with oil. It was unfarmable, it couldn't be used for grazing, and it wasn't financially useful to the U.S. government. So when it was found to be rich in oil, we went back and took their clean water. We took their homes again, their health and their safety. And I'll leave you with this thought. Sergeant Don White, a member of the three affiliate tribes, explains, This is the last of what my people have. 
Our people have survived so many things in history. The meth use, the heroin use is just another epidemic like smallpox and boarding schools. And the last of the last are going to have to survive. And I want to be in the front lines because that was my vow to protect my people. If you like what you hear on the show, if you want to help spread the awareness and amplify the voices of the un and underheard, then head to Murder and Mediumship on iTunes and leave a five-star review. If you are a member of our Patreon, on a lighter note, this month we will be connecting to celebrity comedian Robin Williams on the other side. I'm looking for a way for this podcast to begin financially benefiting those whose voices we amplify. If you know of any charities that you'd like me to consider donating Patreon profits to, please share them with me on Instagram or email them to me. Both will be linked in the show notes. And as usual, thank you all for listening.